Let's open our Bibles to um, Matthew 28. I've entitled the morning's message, The Two Baptisms, and um, let's go to our text in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It's known as the Great Commission, and this is how the Gospel of Matthew ends. And then Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the ends of the age. Amen. Um, This morning, we're actually going to do a study in three different areas. The first one is going to be a, a study on water baptism, adult water baptism. And the second part of it is going to be on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And one of my goals this morning is that we see what the scriptures teach, a clear distinction. There's a difference between being baptized in water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully that will be clear by the time we're done with our study this morning. And then the final point that I want to address is I want to explain um, where infant baptism came into the church. First of all, what it is, what does it mean, when did it start, uh, and what it cost early believers who rejected infant baptism. And that'll be the end of our study. So we'll be dealing with those three issues, water baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and um, the teaching of infant um, baptism, which is preached in Roman Catholicism and also mainline, many mainline Protestant churches. So let's dive in right away by turning to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, for what I call the ABCs of the Christian faith. Paul refers to them here as the elementary principles. Well, we all remember going to elementary school. That's where you learn your ABCs. You've got to learn your ABCs before you can read or write. There are certain cornerstones of being a Christian that are laid out here in the first two verses. And the writer of Hebrews is a little discouraged because he wants to see a little bit more maturity in the the Christians here. So he's encouraging them to leave behind the ABCs and let's leave the milk and let's get into a little bit more of the meat is the idea. So we read in verse 1, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Um, These are foundation stones. He says, let's go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Let's just talk about this first one. When a person um, becomes a believer, there's just certain things that fall away. Dead works, things that we were involved with that weren't godly, that weren't right. When we became a believer, we turned away from that. Well, in turning away from that, the next thing it says, and having faith towards God. So what's foundational in the Christian faith is you leave one. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And we now have our direction and our sights on our faith and God. It's a foundational issue. And then in verse 2, it says the doctrine of 
baptism. This is um, one of the primary theological cornerstones of the Christian faith, baptism, and is what we'll be talking about this morning. But here is in the very next one is where we're going to make a distinction between water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we read in verse two, the doctrine of baptism, and then it says, and the laying on of hands. They're two distinct doctrines. And they're, they're back to back. And it has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the Christian life, and either we die or we're raptured, and we have the resurrection of the dead, and there's basically, um, and then it says, and eternal judgments. So these are the ABCs of what we believe as Christians. Um, we turn from dead works, we turn towards the Lord, we get baptized, uh, laying out of hands, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're either raptured or we die and resurrected. Uh, for the Christian, it's called the Bema seat. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And they get the word, the Olympics are on right now. So every night we go home and we, we, we see them getting the gold or silver or bronze put around their neck. Well, um, Phelps broke the record that was held from 153 AD by some runner. When we were in Rome, we actually saw one of the first places where they had the Olympics. And what the winner would receive was this wreath upon his head. That that would have been the gold, silver medal in, in, in those days. The word bima comes from that idea of reward. And so the Christian judgment is not a judgment for your sins, but it's more of the time when you're rewarded after you've competed the Christian life, and you will be rewarded accordingly. And they actually call it the Bema Seat Judgment. It, they get the term from, actually, the Olympics that goes back. So that's, I guess, the reason Phelps hung in there. He wanted what he wanted that last gold. Uh, I thought it was great. I never heard some record being 153 A.D. when they actually were still having the Olympics back then. So anyway, here we have the ABCs. Then the other judgment, of course, is those who have died in their sins, eternal judgment. Um, what I would point out here is universalism as a false doctrine, or Rob Bell's book, who I'll be talking about later, Love Wins, where he teaches that there is no eternal damnation, that everybody eventually makes it to heaven. Well, not according to Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. Good place for an amen. It's there. These are foundational. These um, are the cornerstones, and we'll get into more detail later. These are the ABCs of of Christian doctrine. And um, with that, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Many times you've heard me say for every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. And I want you to know that that's just more than a a nice catch phrase or cliche, but it's actually biblical, and 1 Corinthians 10 actually teaches it. Because I'm going to take you in a moment to the Old Testament picture of water baptism. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, 
Um, Paul says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, what we have in view here in the sea is when Moses parted the Red Sea, well, God did, but he's equating it to a baptism. And I'll talk more about that in just a little bit. They all ate the same spiritual food, which was what? Manna. And let's just get sidetracked with that for a minute. Manna was to be gathered every single day. If you were thinking, you know, I'm going to gather twice as much today so I I can sleep in the next day, it would breed worms and stink. So you had to pick it every single day. Now, manna is what sustained them. They didn't like it because that's all they had. That's what God gave them to get them through the wilderness, manna, every single day. I would liken it to, Jesus said man can't live by bread alone, right? But by every word that comes from God. So the Bible study this morning will be great for today, but it's no good for Monday morning. You're going to have to get up, die to yourself, get your nose in the Bible, and uh, pick up your cross and do it every single day. That's the picture. And then it says, and they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. There's a whole Bible study right here. Um, When the people murmured and were thirsty, the Lord said to Moses, take a stick, see that rock? Go hit it. He does, and water came out abundantly. And the people quit complaining, and they were and they were um, satisfied their thirst. Well, it tells us here that that rock was Christ. And the people complained again, and the Lord said to Moses, now I want you to go speak to the rock. Not strike it, but just speak to it. But Moses had it up to here with the people because they were complaining all the time. And so he was ticked. So he took his rod, and he said, must I bring you water? Crack, crack, and he hit, the, he hit the rock twice. Well, God was gracious, and the water came out. But he said, Moses, we need to talk. I said, speak to the rock. You see, here's the picture again. Once Jesus was crucified, once he was stricken once, he never needs to be stricken again. Now you can go and talk to him. All you have to do is speak to the rock, and it'll bring forth what you need. And so he's breaking the picture. He said, Moses, you blew it big time. So much so, because of this event, you're not leading my people into the promised land. Now let me take it a step farther in case I forget later. There's a reason that Moses couldn't bring the people into the promised land. John 1.17 says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It would break the picture if God allowed Moses the law to bring God's people into the promises. The law can't do that. And um, there was a guy named Joshua, translated Jesus, who was allowed to bring the people to cross the Jordan. We'll get there in a little bit this morning. But what I want you to see here is that fits the picture. Jesus could take the people into the promised land because he's grace and truth but the law cannot. So, but what I want you to see is that clearly the New Testament does show us that these things, as in verse six, these were, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. 
So for every New Testament teaching, let's go back and uh, um, think about the captivity and the picture of the Christian life, and I'm going to try to go through it as quickly as I can. Children of Israel, I watched the movie Jacob and Joseph just a couple nights ago, and um, of course, after Joseph uh, died, there, there rose a pharaoh that didn't know Joseph, and um, the people, the Israelis of prominence were soon forgotten and made slaves, and for 400 years, they were in bitter bondage. They prayed for a deliverer. God sent Moses. Moses was told by the Lord to bring plagues and judgments to Pharaoh on the land of Egypt so he would let the people go. The tenth and final judgment was the killing of a lamb, taking the lamb's blood, And to avoid having the firstborn of that family die, blood would have to be put on the door lentils, on both side posts and on the top. And the Lord said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. That's where we get the word from. Well, there were some who did and some who didn't. Those who did lived, death passed over. And those who did not, they died in Egypt. So the first picture that we have in the Christian life is before you came to Christ, you were in bondage. What set you free? The blood of the lamb. And death passed over you. Well, what's the next thing that happened? Well, they're booted out of Egypt. And now they're trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh had a change of heart. He wanted to kill him now. And so we've all watched the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston standing up on a rock and parting the Red Sea, and it's a picture. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us it's a type of baptism. What's the first thing that a person does in in the Bible? Turn from the old ways, Egypt, faith towards God, and then the doctrine of baptism. So the water is split, and uh, we find that they went through on dry land, and when the Egyptians, And when the Israelites were on the other side, the waters came back down, and the Egyptian army died. And that's what baptism really is. It's a type of death. Something died, dies in baptism. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a bit. But somewhere along the line, somebody's going to tell you this. Wait, really? What I was told is what it was called the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, and it was only two feet deep, and um, that's how they crossed over. And I think I think to myself, that's amazing that the whole Egyptian army drowned in two feet of water. <laughs> it just blows my mind. And um, you'd think, there, you know, if it happened, if the a whole Egyptian army, there should be some evidence of it. Go ahead, put the evidence up on the screen, please. These are chariot wheels in the middle of the Dead Sea. Anybody here can Google it anytime you want to. Just type in chariots in the Red Sea. And I have three pictures here. There's a couple more. They've been there ever since the waters came back down. And um, I think we have one more. There's one more. That's an axle. And um, there to this day, 
as, as evidence that it wasn't a, two feet of water that they trampled through. No. They walked through. It was a miracle. The water was divided. But more importantly, it's a picture. Because as soon as you're delivered from bondage by the blood of the Lamb, you're baptized. And so then we have, um, they wrote a song called the Song of Moses. People usually are pretty happy when their sins are forgiven and they're baptized. We'll have worship this afternoon. And um, uh, for the next 40 years, they traveled, complained a lot like we do. And uh, God faithfully brought them, except for Moses, into, into the land. That generation died off. There was a whole generation because they didn't believe at first. It was the new generation that went in. All right, so there we have sort of a picture, Old Testament picture. Now, Jesus gave the command in Matthew 28. He was on the earth according to Acts. For He showed himself for 40 days that he was alive at one time to 500 people all at once. And now we find, uh, if you go to Acts chapter 2, the question is, did they follow through with what Jesus told them to do? In Acts chapter 2, I'll come back to in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, we find that, um, uh, let's pick it up in verse 37, Peter presents the gospel because they thought that the men that were filled on the day of Pentecost were drunk. They weren't. He gives a Bible study explaining why Jesus had to come, what his purposes were, and he gives this Bible study, and he's ending it at about the time of chapter 37. And um, by this time, what had happened, uh, Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, was teaching and it was convicting. Verse 37 says, when they heard this, Peter's Bible study, it cut them to their heart. Now that's what happens when a person realizes by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you go to John 6, one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit has to come is to bring conviction of sin. Some people don't think they're sinners. Well, here, Peter's teaching convicted them, cut them to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Everything that you said is true, that we did to Jesus of Nazareth. Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to make this point here, that in this instance, the two are tied right together. Baptism and the Holy Spirit at the same time. But you can't take this out of context and establish it as a set doctrine because I'm going to clearly show you this morning that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit first and then get baptized or um, get saved to be baptized but still not have the Holy Spirit. And I'll take you to both of those places. So, for the promises to you and to your children... And to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. And with many other signs, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his words were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Quick side note here. The day the Holy Spirit was given, and life came to the church, 
There were 3,000 of them. Do you know that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he saw that golden calf that Aaron had made and he saw the orgy that was going on, that he took the commandments and broke them and he told those that weren't involved with it to go after those who were involved with this orgy and kill them. You know what the number was? 3,000. So is it a coincidence when the scripture says the law brings forth death? Or John 1.17 again, the law came by Moses, but the law only pronounces a death sentence upon you because you can't keep the law. Good place for an amen. amen. All right, but the number is interesting to me. 3,000. Then John 1.17 says, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, it's expedient that I leave because if I don't leave, then I can't send back the Holy Spirit. Now, with the beginning of the church, how many people were saved? 3,000. Do you think that's a coincidence? I personally don't think that's a coincidence. The law killed 3,000. The beginning of the church, 3,000 were saved. I just think it's interesting. Let's turn to Acts chapter 8 for another example. This time it's Philip. We'll use him a couple times this morning. And um, and verse, we'll pick it up in verse 26. We're going to come back to Philip in revival. But he's told by the Lord to, to leave the revival in Samaria and to go to Gaza. Gaza's in the news quite a bit today. That's where they're digging the tunnels underground into Israel. And um, we read in verse 26 of Acts 8, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he did. And he went and behold, an Ethiopian, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, so he was a man of importance, He came to Jerusalem to worship. He came to Jerusalem because he was looking for the God of Israel. But he returns not, uh, look, he's returning because he didn't find what he was looking for. But he's still seeking. So here he is sitting in a chariot and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Let me just stop and say that God knew that man's heart. He went all the way to Jerusalem and nobody there shared with him Christ. So he taps Philip on the shoulder and says, you need to get down to Gaza. There's a guy that needs to know about me. And um, so it was Philip. He goes up to the chariot and um, he ran up to him and he, he heard the guy reading the prophet Isaiah and he said, do you have any idea what you're reading? And he says, well, how can I unless somebody teaches me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, he just happened to be reading Isaiah chapter 53, probably the most clear uh, scriptures about Jesus in the Old Testament. And he was reading verses 7 and 8. He says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch 
ask Philip, and he said, I ask you, does he speak of the prophet, of himself, or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and began that scripture, and he preached Jesus to him. I would have loved to have heard that Bible study. He could have said he was standing before Pilate. And um, he says, don't you have an answer to your accusers? And he wouldn't say anything. And so he was like a lamb, dumb before his shears. All Philip, all, all, um, um, Pilate, that's the guy's name. <laughs> all Pilate could come up with is, I find no fault with this man. He's, he's innocent. So he's explaining the gospel to this guy who's seeking the Lord. But what's implied because of what's said in the next verse 36, is that he also taught him about baptism. He not only told about Jesus coming and dying, but he says if you believe it, then you need to be baptized. So, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, hey, there's some water right there. Why can't I be baptized? What I'm about to read next is a condition for any person to exercise their free will in being baptized. And I'll read it to you. Philip said to him, here's the condition. If, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and eunuch went down into the water. He baptized him. And then when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip so that the eunuch saw him no more. In other words, he was raptured. Now, I don't think that's going to happen today. <laughs> but I think it would be pretty, pretty cool if it did. Can you imagine this guy's trip back to Ethiopia? Don't you think he flew back? And he goes to his friends, you're never going to guess what happened to me. <laughs> and um, Philip ends up 20 miles north in a place called Ozeitis. And he came and he preached in all the cities. Then he came to Caesarea. Caesarea uh, is so unbelievably beautiful. It's on the Mediterranean. Um, the climate there is perfect. And uh, the sea is aqua green. And Philip liked it so much when he got there, he settled in. Later we read that um, he's living there with his daughters who could prophesy. Beautiful place to live. I'd, I'd pick there. It's a nice place to live but here we have again another example of water baptism and let me say at this point without exception in the scriptures without exception it's always believe first and then be baptized it's never be baptized first and then believe you will simply not find it in the scriptures and now we'll get to that when we get to the, closer to the end of our study let's go to Acts chapter 16 here we have Paul and Silas, Acts 16, and they're in this city, Philippi, and there's a girl that's demon-possessed. She has a familiar spirit. A familiar spirit is a person who is possessed with a demon who, you, who can tell you things about yourself that they know because they live in a different dimension and they can observe. And in this case, communicate. She had people that she worked for, 
In verse 16, it says, who brought her masters much profit for fortune telling. Now, all of us know that the, the charlatans are out there, the facos, right? And um, they have their little sign, come in and get a, your reading and so on and forth, and there's nothing to it. But the Bible clearly teaches that there are some that it's real. One third of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons. And here, this girl would follow Paul wherever he went and promote him. Said, these two men are prophets of the Most High God, and they bring to you the words of God. And this was going on day after day, and Paul got annoyed with her. And verse 18, he turned around and he said to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now, the guys that she was working for, because she didn't have the gift any longer of uh, fortune telling, their business is shot. So they go after Paul and Silas. They seize them. They take them to the marketplace. And um, they trump up some charges. Verse 22 says that they were beaten with rods. Verse 23 says they put... They whipped him. They put stripes on them. And then they threw Paul and Silas in the inner jail. And they told the jailer, if he gets away, you're a dead man. And that was the charge. These guys. So let's pick it up in verse 25. This to me is being a Christian witness. Imagine being beat up. And you're, you're, you got open wounds on your back. I would say you're hurting, right? And I would probably be whining and moping and complaining. Lord, I'm serving you, I'm your servant, and all I get is beat up and thrown in prison. Not Paul and Silas. It says in verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas were singing, I love you, Lord. (laughs) I sing praise songs. And singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now that, to me, is a witness. And during the difficult times, instead of accusing the Lord, he did like Job. Shall we receive only good from the Lord, not evil? No. And they, they, they were going to worship the Lord, and a little beating up wasn't going to stop them from, from doing it. That, to me, is a Christian witness. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, and the foundation of the prisons were shaken, and immediately, uh, all the doors were open, and every chain was loosed. <laughs> and the keeper of the prison wakes up from all this and he sees the doors open. He supposed that Paul and Silas had taken off and he takes his sword out and he's ready to do Harry Carey because he doesn't want the other guys to get a hold of him because it'll be a lot worse. So he's ready to do himself in. And Paul calls out to him and said, don't do it. We're here, we're here. And he called for a light, the jailer did, the Philippian jailer. He ran in, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas and brought them out, and he said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Who, not, who took off the chains? Who unlocked the door? Who got you? You could have taken off, and you didn't. Why not? What, must, what you got, I want. How do I get it? And this is what they said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, and your household. Now, let me clarify that. That's going to happen this night. Paul was speaking prophetically because he knew that they're going to go to this guy's house and they're just going to give a Bible study there and the whole family's going to get saved. But that doesn't mean, you can't take this verse out of context and say because mom and dad are saved, 
the whole household is saved. That's not what's being said here. It's what's going to happen to this particular jailer. Everybody with me on that one? Okay, verse 32 tells us, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. So they present the gospel, and all who were in his house. And he took the same hour, and they washed the stripes, and immediately him and his family, here it is, they believed, and they were baptized. And when he brought them into the house, he set food before them, and they rejoiced, having believed in God and his household. That always happens when a person gets saved. Come out of Egypt, go, go through the Red Sea, first thing you do is write a song, Song of Moses. And um, that's what happens to a believer. The Bible says when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. That's true. So another example here that we have is in these verses. Let's... Um, Go back to one more place. Um, Let's go to Romans chapter 6. And we'll finish up with water baptism. The setting for Romans chapter 6 is a definition of what baptism actually is. The attitude in Rome at the time was they were hearing that God was in the forgiving sin business. Their attitude was great, let's sin. That way God's grace will abound even more and more. So that's the background to what we're gonna read in verse one. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, when a person is baptized, they are acknowledging it's like a burial. Something died, an old life has died, like the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And you come forth this new person. Verse four, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Here's a definition of what's gonna happen this afternoon. Um, People outwardly have accepted Jesus in their heart already. Now, they're not ashamed to be called a Christian. Let's face it, for a grown man or woman to go and get dunked in the water, to an unbelieving world, don't you think that's kind of dumb and foolish? Sure, that's what they think, that's that's foolishness. But not to anybody who's been born again. They wanna publicly, um, like Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, then I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. What is baptism? Baptism is saying, I'm not ashamed to be called a Christian. I'm gonna go out and say, I was one man, I'm going down the water, it's a type of death. And I'm coming forth, this brand new person, the same way that Jesus died and came back to life. So I died to an old life, and I have this new life. It says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. doesn't say some things. You're a new person. That's why we call it being born again. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, 
knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, just as they were slaves in Egypt, but not after the blood. Then they were set free and they were baptized, and we have that beautiful Old Testament picture. That's water baptism. Let's move on to the second baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you need to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in front of you so that you can make sure what I'm saying is accurate. John 14 is a promise. Jesus has not yet been taken to the cross. He's talking about what's going to happen after he's gone. They've been with him for three years. They've given up everything because they believed in him. And now he realizes it's going to be quite a blow to them when he's gone. So now he's preparing them for that moment. So in verse 15 of chapter 14, he says, If you love me, then keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper or comforter, and that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. Now, this is an important distinction right here. The Holy Spirit uh, was with them, but then he says, future tense, and will be in you. Did they believe on Christ? Of course they did. Uh, he talks about the Holy Spirit. I, like, I liken it to... Who do you think was pulling the strings with, with the Ethiopian? The Holy Spirit spoke to Philip, right? And told Philip to do that, to go down to uh, Gaza. And it was there that the Holy Spirit was able to work through Philip to explain the scriptures and baptism. So here he's talking about the third order of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He's with you now, and before you were born again, he was dealing with you, and he was looking for you. Uh, We like to say I was looking for the Lord, but believe me, he's the one that sought us out. Good place for an amen, Um, because the Bible says no man really does really seek after God. He has to come looking for us, and so he sends Phillips into your life, so to speak, and then he says, but eventually he's going to be in you. And again, that's why Jesus said it's expedient that I go to heaven so that when I get there, I will send back. The word there is, uh, for, for helper is the word parakletus in the Greek. And it means comforter. And he will be with you and walk alongside of you. And um, uh, I'll just leave that there as something that is going to happen that hasn't happened yet. When John the Baptist first introduced Jesus, this is what he said in Matthew 3. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now that was a promise. Now, if you go back to Acts 2, 
Let's go to the day that this is going to be fulfilled. It was no accident that Jesus died on the Passover. They were told to, the Jews were told to do the, remember the Passover every year. Now Jesus died on the Passover. He was the Passover lamb, fulfilling the blood. And now, in the first part of Acts, it says that he was on the earth. He appeared to um, as many as 400 at, 500 at one time. And um, he's bodily taken into heaven. 50 days after Passover, we have Pentecost. Pente actually means 50. And what we have here is another fulfillment of prophecy. Let's read verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind filled the whole house where they were seating, and there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let me just point out a couple things here. First, this is the only place in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is filling a person where they can actually hear it and see it. They heard it like a mighty rushing wind. They saw it as flames of fire above their head. It's not repeated as far as I can tell any other time when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. So this was a very special one-time event. Well, they began to speak in languages of the other nations about the wonderful things that God had done. It's listed all the way from around the world. And the people were amazed, verse 12, and perplexed. And they're saying, what could this be? But others says, ah, oh, they're, they're drunk with new wine. And um, Peter then gets up and he says, look, it's nine o'clock in the morning. These guys are not drunk. But let me tell you what it is. Verse 16, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it says, it'll come to pass in those days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I'm in more of the category of dreaming dreams. <laughs> and my maid, and on my maidservants and on my men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heavens. So part of this is fulfilled and part of it is still yet future. But what's happening on this day, uh, Peter is clearly saying this is a fulfilled prophecy that was foretold by none other than Joel uh, the prophet. So we have this fulfillment. Now go to um, verses 16. 16 through 21, oh, I've already read those, so I'm just checking my notes here. All right, let's look at one more example. This time Acts 8, but the first part of it. So I'll just flip over a couple more pages to Acts chapter 8. Before Philip went to Gaza, this is what was going on in his revival. And... Um, He was in a city of Samaria and he was simply preaching the gospel. 
Before Philip was a table waiter. Um, He was a deacon, but he had the gift of being an evangelist. So the Lord tells him to go up to Samaria, and everything broke loose. Verse 6 says miracles were done. Verse 7 said unclean spirits cried out and came out of people. People who were possessed were set free. People who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy, it says, in the city. And we find that they had a town sorcerer whose name was Simon. He practiced sorcery. And uh, everybody was, I like to call him the big man on campus because everybody looked up to this particular guy. And he, he astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was somebody great. And all the people in town looked up to Simon the sorcerer. Uh, and they heeded him. But, verse 12, when they believed Philip, uh, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now this part is important as we make a distinction between water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And to me, this is one of the clearest places where it's taught in in the scriptures. But in verse 13, even the town sorcerer, Simon, he believes and he's baptized. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent for Peter and John to them who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as of yet, he had fallen, he being the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now remember Hebrews 6. Remember the doctrines? The doctrine of baptism. And the next one was what? Laying on of hands, right? Okay, now read. Verse 17, then they, who's they, Peter and John, laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Gang, what I'm saying is this. It's possible to be saved, it's possible to be baptized, and still not be baptized in the Holy Spirit. These are clearly in the scripture taught as two very unique, separate events. Much of um, mainline, especially the Baptists who are... I'm commending them because many of them are still teaching the word of God. Amen then? Give them credit for that. But they, they don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is, to me is hilarious because Billy Graham doesn't hold to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and yet he's got the anointing of the best evangelist who ever walked the planet. Obviously, baptized in the Holy Spirit to be an evangelist. Um, I think he's still alive, isn't he? Yeah, he's still alive. I'm going to have to sit down and talk to him someday, see if he'll listen. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, here we see, see it. But then, the big man on campus, Simon, when he saw that the laying out of hands, that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. See, Simon wants to be the big man on campus again. So he says, I'll slip you guys 20 bucks. Show me how you do that. And uh, Peter rebuked him. He says, your money's going to perish with you, buddy. You better repent because your attitude stinks. God's not going to give you the Holy Spirit because you just want to be the big man on campus. Not going to happen. 
It says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, that anybody who desires the Holy Spirit, let it be for the exhortation of the church. In other words, if you want it, it's so that you can build up somebody else other than yourself, one exception. 1 Corinthians 14, 4. That's the gift of tongues, which is used for self-edification. But every other gift is to be used to build up somebody else. So if you don't really have a desire to build up somebody else, I don't really know what the necessity for you is if you can be saved, still go to heaven. But hopefully we see this need. Lord, I can't do this. And unless you do it through your Holy Spirit, it's just not gonna happen. That's why the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but without him, I can do what? Nothing. And that's very, very true. So we don't know whatever happened to Simon, but let me give you um, another uh, example of this. We're in Acts 8. Flip over to Acts 19. We have Paul... In Acts 19, he's making his way up to Ephesus in verse 1, and he finds some disciples up there. There's going to be 12 of them, we're going to find out. And he, in talking to these guys, he had had this impression that something was lacking. And so he asked the question in verse two, he said, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Believing something's missing, that Paul sensed. And they said to him, well, we haven't even heard so much that there even was a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, and to what then were you baptized? And he said unto them, unto John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with water of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that's on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. There was about 12 of them. So here's, here's another example of guys who were believers, but yet needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, If it's true that for every New Testament teaching there's an Old Testament picture and we saw it clearly with the Red Sea, um, is there a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. So let's turn to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua 3. And as you're turning, again, let me set the picture. Joshua is going to be the one who leads the children of Israel into the promised land. Remember, Moses couldn't do it. It breaks the picture. So, Joshua, um, in verse 1, it says, Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from the Acacia Grove and they came to the Jordan, all the children of Israel, and they lodged there before they crossed over. So just picture this. They're getting ready to finally enter in after 40 years into what God had promised to them. 
and they have to cross the Jordan to do it. Now it's the time of the year when the Jordan is at flood stage. If you go to verse 16, we find that the first water baptism was all done by God. He just did it. And that's the way it is with salvation. The Lord provides the work. But here, in this crossing, once again, we're gonna find waters parting and the people walking over on dry land. It happens twice in the scriptures. Once, when they were baptized, coming out of Egypt, but now they're getting ready to enter the promise of God. What did Jesus promise his disciples? The Holy Spirit. So here's the type. Let's read it in verse 16. Then the waters which came down from the stream stood still and rose in a uh, heap very far away at Adam, at the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabia, the Salt Sea, failed. That would be the Dead Sea and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground. You'd think it would be a little muddy, don't you? It wasn't, because it's another miracle. They walked over on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people completely crossed over the Jordan, and then what? And then the waters went right back to the way they were before. We have two pictures of baptism in the Old Testament. One's water baptism that God did on his own. This one here was done as a step of faith, and while I'm saying that, you need to turn to Luke chapter 11, because they're now entering into God's promise. Maybe some of you are thinking right now, well, I'm not sure if I have the baptism of the Holy Spirit or not. And if I don't, then how do I get it? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Because Luke 11, verse 11, tells us. We're told in verse 11, if a son asks for bread, and any among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you as parents, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now here's, here's the point. Do you really want it? How hungry are you for it? Your kid comes home from school, it's not supper time. Mom, can I have some milk and cookies? Oh sure, it'll hold you over till supper time. Why would you do that? Because you're a parent who loves your kid. And the same way, the Lord chose to use this analogy for receiving the Holy Spirit by asking, are you hungry? Kid comes home, are you gonna turn him away? Well, if an earthly human parent is good and understands that, how much more our heavenly Father who loves us and yet he wants us to ask him for it. He says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's go back to Simon the Sorcerer. He wanted it, right? Hey. I want that. What was his motive? All wrong. Still wanted to be the big man on campus. But if you want to 
If you see the necessity in your life, Lord, I want to be a blessing. I want to be used by you. But I just know myself too well. It can't be me. Right. You need, that's why Jesus told the disciples, you wait in Jerusalem until you receive power on high, and then I'll send you out to be witnesses. But not before. You guys have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and then I will send you out as witnesses into all the world. We've just ended the second session. This won't, last one won't take long, and it's a misunderstanding of infant baptism. And I wanna ask the question, when did it come into the church? Why did it come into the church? And to answer that question, you need to know that for 431 years, there was no such thing as infant baptism. It simply did not exist. In 431, the Roman Catholic Church instituted infant baptism as a sacrament. And basically, um, you had to be baptized as an infant, and I'll be reading later, because if you were not baptized, it was part of um, Roman Catholicism's sacraments. And I'm going to go through the sacraments here. When a Roman Catholic tells you that they are saved by grace, they have a different interpretation than you and I have of grace. Their interpretation of grace is if you keep the sacraments, you merit God's grace. Well, what are the sacraments? Well, the first one was in 431 BC. Never existed before. So if what they're saying is true, and if you're not baptized, they tell you that that child either goes to hell or limbo. That would mean, logically, that every Christian for the first 400 years is either in hell or limbo. And the second part of it, in 500 AD, the mass was instituted, that's the sacrament. Purging of sin, 593. Prayers for the dead, 600. Prayers to Mary, 600. The worship of of images, uh, 786. Declaring a person a saint, in 995. Mandatory Mass in the year 1000. It was a sin if you didn't go to Mass. The celibacy of priests, uh, 1079. Rosary invented, 1090. The Inquisition, 1184. Indulgences sold. What's that? Well, that's buying people out of purgatory. That, was, that didn't come around until 1215. Confession to a priest, 1215. My Bible says there's only one mediator, between God and man, I go straight to the Lord for my sins, but not in Roman Catholicism. Um, reading Bible is forbidden in 1229. Purgatory, 1438. Tradition given authority over scripture in 1549. They added books to the Bible in 1546. Uh, Mary was born without sin, 1854. The popes are infallible, 1870. Mary can save you, 1922. Mary's body never decomposed, 1950. Now, what I'm going to read from you caused quite a stir after the first service because I couldn't remember the name of the book and everybody wanted to know what I was reading. This was written by Dave Hunt. It's, it's about John Calvin. 
It's called, so I can tell you now in case I forget, John Calvin's Tyrannical Kingdom. I want to talk a little bit about something I'm very concerned about, even within the Calvary Chapel movement, called Calvinism or Reformed Theology. It's known by both. But let me just tell you a little bit about this man and um, where infant baptism plays in Calvinism and Reformed Theology. John Calvin, referred to as the dictator of Geneva, imposed his own brand of Christianity on the citizens, which included a confession of faith that was mandatory for all citizens. It revolved around forced unity in observing the sacraments, particularly infant baptism regeneration. Now, what Roman Catholicism, the denomination that I grew up in, and Calvinism and Reformed theology teach is that when a baby is baptized, that is when they are regenerated. He felt so strongly about this that he enforced it. He was the king of Geneva. You couldn't go to the bathroom without talking to John Calvin, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. No... um, Uh, Judgment was made in the church or legislation without bouncing it off John Calvin. From 1541 to 1546, John Calvin caused 58 people to be executed. 76 were exiled. They ran for their life. His victims ranged from 16 to 80. The most common capital offense was was the opposition to infant baptism. They're known in history as the anti baptist And they were some of the people that came to America because they were fleeing this tyranny in England. The Bible teaches baptism for accountable believers only, but in Calvin's time, it was punished, what we're going to do this afternoon, would be punished either by drowning or by being burned at the stake or by being beheaded. All this was done in public, So citizens would be compelled to watch. Of course, it would strike fear in their hearts if they dared oppose Calvin on anything. He was determined to create the kingdom of God on this planet, starting with the city of Geneva. Check it out. Do your history. This is my concern today in the Calvary Chapel movement is young guys growing up who haven't studied church history. They haven't looked back. They're looking to the Rob Bells of the world. It sounds a whole lot better that nobody's going to hell, and they gravitate towards that instead of just studying history and what any person sitting here can do on their own. I'll tell just one story in particular who was a man who was not afraid of John Calvin. His name was Michael Servertus. Michael Servertus was a particular thorn in Calvin's flesh. He was premillennial. He rejected Calvin's doctrine of predestination and was also strongly opposed to Catholicism. He referred to the Mass as a a satanic uh, monstrosity, an invention of demons. He also stated that infant baptism was a doctrine of the devil, an invention of popery, and a total subversion of Christianity. He wrote two letters to Calvin on adult baptism and exhorted him to follow his example. These were used as evidence against him during his trial. Servertus admitted 
at the trial that he had refused, he had referred to infant baptism as a diabolical invention and uh, infernal falsehood destructive to Christianity. Calvin wrote in a letter, uh, Severtus later wrote to me, he takes it upon him to come here, if he be agreeable to me. But I am willing to pledge my word for his safety, for if he shall come, I shall never permit him to depart alive, provided my authority be of any avail. So Severtus was tortured, burned alive for the crime of heresy. Calvin personally went to that trial. They wanted to behead him. Calvin insisted that he burn for a half an hour at the stake instead. Again, gang, just check this out. This is history. It's, this guy goes down in church history, Sabertus, as a man who was willing to, along with many Anabaptists, stand up and say, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. And um, so Sabertus was tortured and burned as a heretic for relating to his objection of infant baptism and several other trumped up charges. He died October 17th, 1553. For further reading, I've just given you a portion of it here. Uh, This is uh, called John Calvin's Tyrannical Kingdom by Dave Hunt. Um, Sir Robert Anderson refers to um, this and what's sad about it is that the idea is if you don't have infant baptism, especially in Roman Catholicism, there is no regeneration. And the babies either go to hell or limbo. And um, I had to ask Mary, I said, what is limbo? I, don't, I'm a, I was a Protestant. When she was brought up a Catholic. And she says, you know, limbo, just nowhere. You know what that is? That's called making it up. <laughs> That's what that's called. There is no such thing as limbo. There is no such thing as purgatory. There's none of that. Once to die and then the judgment. And without exception, the Bible teaches believe first and then be baptized. You do not find infant baptism in there. And this guy, this, this would, Michael would have been just an average bro here at Calvary Chapel that, under, that understands, well, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. Any Bible-believing Christian who simply would read their Bible would understand that the Bible is very clear about the teaching doctrine of baptism and of the laying on of hands. My concern is for our own movement because I'm going to close this morning telling you who the Reformers are and who the Calvinists are and there will be names that you will recognize. And I'm going to shock some of you this morning by listing off this name. I'll start with the first guy. His name is Tim Keller. And it broke my heart when I found out that this was recommended on the reading list this year at Calvary Chapel Costa Basis Pastors Conference. He's a full-on Calvinist reformer. Of course, Mark Driscoll, um, John Piper, Rob Bell, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, that always surprised a lot of people. He's one of the big leaders in the Gospel Coalition. And if you don't know what that is, I would encourage you to find out what it is. It is a cornerstone of Reformed theology and Calvinism. 
Um, J.I. Packer, Albert Moeller, James White, the entire Acts 29 organization started by Mark Driscoll. In Europe today especially, many of the Calvary chapels are joining together with Acts 29 to plant these churches. Christianity Today magazine is reformed in its theology. Now, today, um, we have about 20 or so people that are going to be baptized. And um, isn't this just a happy, joyful way to end a Bible study? (laughs) Oh, man. So I tried to figure out how could I lighten it up after just laying it out. And um, so this is what's going to happen today. This afternoon, 20 or more of you are going to be baptized. But the thing is this. Some of you, because of your past, we're going to have to hold down just a little bit longer. (laughs) And um, it just takes longer to wash that other stuff away. So I'm just letting you know ahead of time um, that that's that's going to have to happen. (laughs) Sometimes when you search the scriptures... Being brought up, my dad was 50 when he got saved. He was baptized in Israel. And um, when dad got saved, he was upset. He went back to our denomination. He says, I've been here for 25 years, and I never heard once about being born again or being baptized after I became a believer. It's my choice. I choose to be this Christian, not because my denomination says so. He was only going by what the guy behind the pulpit was saying. I'm challenging you to be a Berean. And if anything that I said this morning is not the truth, then you come and talk, show me where I'm wrong, and I'll gladly be open to talk to you about it. On the other hand, if you're a part of a tradition that's been so ingrained in your life that your attitude is simply, don't bother me with the facts. Sort of like the Paul Simon lyric, man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Don't bother me with the truth what scripture says, I got my mind made up. And there's many who fit in that category. So, if this isn't what you hold to or believe, all I would do is, in a loving way, just encourage you to be a Berean. All of this, you can Google anything from the Chariot Wheels to Dave Hunt's book or the history of John Calvin. John Calvin was one of, to say this man was a Christian is is an abomination because there's no way his teachings nor his actions had anything to do. Jesus laid down his life. He didn't murder people who didn't go along with his doctrine. Amen? Let's stand and we'll call it a day. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and we just commit it to you. Lord, we thank you for your grace as the scriptures offer grace as simply a finished work, a free gift that we don't deserve, we can't earn. And when it's proclaimed, if we believe it, and we're willing to confess you before people, then we should be baptized. And Lord, we are so weak in so many areas that we're totally dependent upon your spirit to do the work of ministry. So bless these people today, especially those that are being baptized. In Jesus' name, amen.